It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. May 6, 2010, just before 4 a.m., as 51-year-old Lawrence Taylor stood in the bathroom of Room 160 at the Holiday Inn, he splashed some water on his face. He was in Montebello, New York, a long way away from his Florida home. He stared at himself in the mirror, accepting the fact that he had just slept with a teenage sex worker for $300. Sure, he had cheated on his wife, but at least he wasn't smoking crack anymore. He swallowed a glass of bourbon and told himself he did nothing wrong. It was not the first, and it wouldn't be the last time he would pay for sex. No sense in dwelling on it. Taylor made his way to the bed and laid back, watching the TV. He reflected on the journey that was his life. Two Super Bowl wins, NFL MVP, millions of dollars made, retirement, endless nights of smoking crack, hitting rock bottom, and pulling himself out of the depths of despair. For close to 11 years, he had managed to stay clean. The days of LT, the party animal, were long gone. He wasn't going to be that man anymore. Well, except for the occasional night with a sex worker. Soon, his eyes grew heavy and fell asleep. Taylor jolted out of bed to a loud pounding on the hotel door. He quickly put on his robe and answered. He was met with a blinding light. When his eyes were adjusted, he could see the police in front of him. Flashlights pointed right at him. Before he could register what was going on, he was turned around and slapped with a pair of handcuffs. Lawrence Taylor was under arrest for statutory rape. Welcome to Sports Criminals, a ParCast original. Every week, we dive into the dark side of sports history and look at athletes who not only broke the law, but broke the rules and covenants of their sport. We'll also uncover how their actions impacted the history of the sport they played and had a ripple of cultural and social implications. I'm Tim Johnson. And I'm Carter Roy. You can find episodes of Sports Criminals and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Sports Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. 
Now, last week, we began our dive into the story of controversial Giants linebacker Lawrence Taylor. Upon his entering the league, Taylor's aggressive, no-holds-barred style of play revolutionized the game. However, off the field, Taylor found himself another love, crack cocaine. This week, we'll follow Taylor as the end of his prolific career led to a retirement full of drugs and run-ins with law enforcement, and how his attempt to turn his life around was derailed in 2010 by a statutory rape charge. On September 5, 1988, the New York Giants opened their season against their divisional rival, the Washington Redskins. After a rough season the year before, the Giants were looking to rebound and return to their 1986 championship form. Over 70,000 fans were in attendance at Giants Stadium in East Rutherford, New Jersey that night. When the game ended, the score was New York 27, Washington 20. It was a solid, if unspectacular, start to the new season. But missing from the bright lights and adoring shouts was star linebacker Lawrence Taylor. A month earlier, he had learned that he had failed his second drug test in a year. Unlike the first failed test, this one had serious consequences. He was suspended for the first four games of the 1988 season. The 29-year-old linebacker had an addiction to crack cocaine. It was cooked with baking soda, and he would add it to the tip of his cigarettes. By his own admission, there were times he was going through an ounce every day. For many, the NFL's announcement of the failed test was a complete shock. True, many in LT's life knew that he loved to go out and party all night, but two years earlier, he had gone to rehab and he was allegedly clean. LT had kept his addiction secret, as best he could at least. In years past, he had used clean urine from fellow teammates or assistants to pass his drug tests. But in 1987 and 1988, the league had caught him. In the documentary LT, The Life and Times, LT denies that the urine from the failed test was even his. He claims that in an attempt to fool the testers and replace his sample with clean urine, he accidentally switched it with a tainted cup. Whether that actually happened is up for debate. What wasn't, though, was the suspension itself. By missing four games due to a league suspension, he was also forfeiting a quarter of his million-dollar salary. It was a crushing financial blow for the man who had crossed the picket line during a player's strike because he didn't like losing money. But the real threat that loomed over his second strike was that if LT failed a third drug test, he'd receive a lifetime ban. That risk weighed heavily on LT. His entire livelihood came from football, not cocaine, and he used that as motivation when he was finally allowed to return in week five. In the four games without their star linebacker, the Giants went two and two, dropping games to the San Francisco 49ers and the Los Angeles Rams. However, their wins against Washington and Dallas put them in first place in their division, and with LT back in the fold, they intended to stay there. For the rest of the 1988 season, LT was in top form. Though the league drug-tested him twice a week throughout the season, LT was committed to staying clean, for himself and for his family. Arguably, his greatest game that season came on November 27, 1988, against the New Orleans Saints. 
But in the weeks leading up to it, Elty's head wasn't in the right place. Despite his renewed commitment, thoughts of quitting the game or moving to a different team for a fresh start entered his head. And soon, he was saying it out loud. Even though the Giants were winning, some of the games were too close for LT's liking. As motivation, head coach Bill Parcells claimed that his trade value, with two failed drug tests, was low. LT was damaged goods. No GM in his right mind would trade for him. Parcells knew what he was doing. The comment angered LT, and he took his aggression out on the Saints in a game with playoff implications. Going into the game, the Giants were banged up. Both linebackers, Harry Carson and Carl Banks, were out due to injury, as was quarterback Phil Simms. And to make matters worse, LT was himself suffering a torn pectoral muscle. He shouldn't have played, but his team needed him. He had already let them down earlier in the season with his suspension. He wasn't going to do it again. With a leather harness strapped under his jersey, LT was practically unable to move his right arm. But that didn't stop him. This was Lawrence Taylor. That night, LT played through excruciating pain, the most painful experience of his playing career. And in the process, he put up one of the most memorable games of his career. He had seven tackles, three sacks, and forced two fumbles. Everyone who watched LT that night remembered why he was the baddest to play the game. When his team needed him, he showed up. Now, he was going to have to rely on them if he wanted to overcome his drug addiction. Unfortunately, the 1988 season ended in disappointment for LT. The Giants went 10-6, and six, missing the playoffs for the second year in a row. During the offseason, LT made sure to keep his nose clean from drugs, but that didn't stop him from partying hard. Booze, women, and gambling were things he wasn't able to kick. He was the same LT, just without the coke-laced cigarette dangling from his mouth. To keep his mind off the drugs, he channeled his efforts into investing in a restaurant called, what else, LT's. LT was through with dishing out thousands of dollars each night at bars and clubs. But if he owned his own place, he'd be able to keep partying while also making money. And if LT wasn't partying at his restaurant, he was living it up at a strip club that he also had a financial stake in. When he wasn't boozing at LT's or First and Ten, LT was focused on football. Even with all of his off-the-field troubles, LT ended the 1980s as still one of the best players in the entire sport. He had the resume to prove it. Super Bowl champ, MVP, nine-time Pro Bowler, and had racked up 113 and a half sacks. And the 31-year-old used these eye-popping statistics to renegotiate his contract. However, the negotiations weren't smooth. Around that time, the highest-paid defensive player was Reggie White, a defensive end on the Philadelphia Eagles. At that time, in the five seasons he had been an Eagle, White had accumulated a whopping 81 sacks. With production like that, he had earned a $1.5 million a year deal. LT, according to the New York Times, wanted to be paid $2 million a year. Though in his memoir, he claims he was asking for $3 million. 
When the Giants didn't give in to his demands, LT decided to hold out. Well, if an athlete and a team don't agree on contract terms before training camp, the athlete will refuse to show up or hold out until a deal they favor gets made, or the team calls the athlete's bluff and the pressure forces the athlete to end the holdout. Regardless, it's always a stressful time between both the player and the team. After all, sports is a business, and business can erase any emotional attachment between two parties. It didn't matter that LT and the Giants had been together for nine years. If the money wasn't right, both would have been willing to part ways. Lawrence Taylor held out for 44 days. And in those 44 days, there was wild speculation that the Giants would trade him to another team, possibly to division rival Philadelphia. LT admitted in his memoir that he feared that his days as a Giant were over. Giant Stadium was his home, and the thought of losing his home scared him. But after 44 days, LT and the Giants came to a deal. While it wasn't $2 million a year like he had asked, the deal still made LT the highest-paid defensive player in NFL history, $5 million for three years. With a new contract in hand, LT was ready for the 1990 season, and he proved to everyone that he was worth the enormous new contract. He finished the year with 10 and a half sacks, one interception, and another Pro Bowl appearance. Most importantly, the team finished 13 and 3. But instead of feeling excitement for making it back to the playoffs, LT and the rest of the Giants went into the postseason with some trepidation. In week 15, while playing against the Buffalo Bills, Giants starting quarterback Phil Simms broke his foot crushing blow to the team's morale. In his place was 29-year-old backup Jeff Hostetler. LT liked Hostetler, but didn't think he had what it took to lead a championship team. In his seven years on the Giants, Hostetler had only started two games. In LT's mind, their trip to the playoffs would ultimately end the way it almost always did, in disappointment. However, Hostetler proved LT wrong. The team coasted to the NFC Championship game, where they faced the reigning Super Bowl champs, the San Francisco 49ers. With a stacked roster of Joe Montana, Jerry Rice, and Ronnie Lott, the Niners were the clear favorites. But the Giants had heart on their side. With less than three minutes left to play, the score was 13 to 12 in favor of San Francisco. To protect their lead and run down the clock, the Niners brought in backup quarterback Steve Young. On first and 10, Young snapped the ball on the Giants' 40-yard line and handed it off to running back Roger Craig. As Craig ran up the middle, he was met by a wall of Giants defenders. LT was one of them. He swallowed up Craig and sent the running back into the ground. But as both men went crashing into the grass, LT grabbed the ball out of Craig's hands, forcing a fumble that was recovered by the Giants. The Giants were able to march down the field and kick a field goal, shocking the world with a 15-13 victory. For the second time in just four years, LT was going to the Super Bowl. 
But Super Bowl 25 was going to be tough, both physically and mentally. The Giants were facing the team that sent Phil Simms to the sidelines, the 13-3 Buffalo Bills. Once again, the Giants were the clear underdogs. The Bills were favored by seven. But LT and the Giants fought, and fought, and fought. In the final moments of the game, the Giants were up 20 to 19. But Bills quarterback Jim Kelly drove the ball downfield to get his team in easy field goal range with eight seconds left on the clock. LT never usually played on special teams, but this play was too big. It was the entire season on the line. He demanded that he go in. With eight seconds to go, Buffalo snapped the ball. Kicker Scott Norwood took two steps and booted it. LT rushed and shoved his hand in the air to try and block the ball from making its way to the uprights. Instead, LT found himself face down in the mud as players piled on top of him. All LT could do was hope that one of his teammates did what he couldn't do. But the ball sailed just outside the reach of his teammates and to the right of the goalposts. Norwood's kick had missed. With the Giants now in possession of the ball, they quickly ran out the clock. And for the second time in his career, Lawrence Taylor was a Super Bowl champion. But as LT puts it himself in his memoir, as we carried Bill Parcells off the field with all those lights flashing and everyone whooping and hollering, I had no idea that this was the beginning of the end of my football career. Coming up, LT's NFL career comes to a close and retirement leads to a spiral of drugs and brushes with the law. Now back to the story. At the beginning of 1991, 32-year-old LT and the New York Giants were Super Bowl champs for the second time in less than five years. But what should have been a joyous moment wound up being the beginning of the end. A few months after the Super Bowl, head coach Bill Parcells announced that he was going to retire. The news devastated LT. For 10 years, LT had relied on Parcells to motivate him and help him with his demons. Now his lifeline was gone. In his own words, LT retired when Parcells retired. Though he would return for the upcoming season, mentally he had checked out. With Parcells gone, thoughts of his own retirement filled LT's head. Despite his love for competition and desire to win, he couldn't see himself playing for much longer. To make matters worse, his marriage to Linda had come to an end. After years of putting up with LT's drug addiction, alcohol abuse, and womanizing, she was ready to put the pain and suffering she endured behind her. In 1992, she filed for divorce for the second time in their marriage. Between his personal troubles and declining passion for the game, LT hoped to call 1992 his final season. He wanted to take one more victory lap around the league and end his influential career on a high note. But on November 8, 1992, the plan changed while playing against the Green Bay Packers. 
As 23-year-old quarterback Brett Favre dropped back to hurl the ball downfield, 33-year-old LT leapt in front and tried to bat it down. LT got his hands on it, and as it spun around in the air, he thought that he could snatch it for an interception. But as he jumped towards the ball, he was suddenly pulled down by another player. And when he landed on the ground... An excruciating jolt of pain shot through his leg. It felt like the back of his ankle was on fire. As he laid on the ground, waiting for the trainers to come and attend to him, all LT could think about was that he was done. But this was not the way he was going to end his prolific career. He was not going to let a torn Achilles sabotage his exit from the game he changed. After the game, rumors began to swirl as to whether or not the injury would force LT into retirement. But when asked by the press if he was going to retire, LT remained cagey. LT made it back just in time for the 1993 season. With him back in the fold, the Giants finished 11-5 and made it to the playoffs for the first time since their 1990 Super Bowl winning season. In the divisional round, they faced their old foes, the San Francisco 49ers. But unlike previous matchups where both teams fought to the end for the win, this game was a blowout. On January 14, 1994, the 49ers beat the Giants 44-3. Between that loss and the six sacks he recorded for all of 1993, it was a quiet way for LT to end his career. As the press descended on him after the game, LT made the announcement. I think it's pretty well time to call it quits. I've been to Super Bowls. I've been to playoffs. I've earned the respect of players and people in general around the country. After 13 seasons in the league, LT finished his career having played 184 games. He had accumulated 132 and a half sacks, nine interceptions for 134 return yards, two touchdowns, and 33 forced fumbles. It should be noted, though, since the NFL didn't begin recording sacks until LT's second season, his nine and a half sacks from his rookie season weren't officially recorded. Adding them in brings LT's total sack number to 142, putting him in the top 10 of all time. But darker things were on the horizon. Without the constant drug testing and the threat of losing his job, LT dove headfirst back into his addiction. All facets of LT's life quickly spiraled out of control. His several business ventures failed, and with the bills piling up and no emotional support system, LT had become noticeably angrier. During the 1995 season, Giants head coach Dan Reeves asked LT to give the players a pep talk. It wasn't the first time LT had been asked to energize the young players, but in September 1995, it was almost certainly his last. After giving the speech, LT was approached by reporter Ernie Palladino. Palladino wanted to ask LT questions, but LT wanted them to focus on the team. He was retired now. It was no longer about him. Palladino didn't take no for an answer. He followed LT around, yelling expletives at the former linebacker. LT tried to keep his cool, but it was becoming too much. 
when Palladino made a snide comment under his breath about how LT hadn't changed, LT ran up to the journalist, grabbed him by the neck, and threw him to the side. And it was all caught on camera. No charges were brought, but it was an incredibly embarrassing moment for the once idolized superstar. To cope with all of his failures, LT sank deeper and deeper into drugs. When he wasn't paying his alimony and child support, he used what he made on cocaine. His crack binges were so bad that he became paranoid and forgetful. He feared that people could see him through the windows and would frequently lose track of his schedule. Finally, on December 5th, 1995, LT checked into rehab. Much like his stint in 1986, the process was a facade. After 14 days, LT checked himself out. Within a week, he was back to smoking crack cocaine. In his memoirs, he says that rehab was more like a detox. I didn't go in to learn anything. I just went in to sober up. It was like a little vacation. It seemed as if the only joy LT got outside of getting high was playing golf. A favorite place of his was down at Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. In May 1996, LT went down to play in a golf tournament, but arrived a few days early to play a few rounds as a warm-up. On the night of May 2nd, LT looked for the house of a local crack dealer. After finding him, LT was told that he was out, but to come back the next day. The next morning, May 3rd, LT drove back over to his dealer's house, who now had some crack for LT. The deal was easy. Too easy. Seconds after LT gave the guy money, the 37-year-old was arrested. Ultimately, he agreed to 60 hours of community service. It wasn't an extreme punishment, but it did inspire him to return to rehab back in New Jersey. But the sentiment did little to protect LT from the many legal issues he would face in the 90s. In June 1997, LT pleaded guilty to filing a false income tax return in 1990. And in May 1998, he was arrested as part of a deadbeat parents roundup in New Jersey for failing to pay child support. While he still had a network of people around him, his relationship with his family was on the rocks. All of them have admitted how hard it was to want to be associated with LT at this time. His teenage son, Lawrence Taylor Jr., tried to avoid people who knew who he was. He was embarrassed by what was happening to his father. And with each new arrest, Linda was forced to tell her children before they heard or read it on the news, to give them time to process the information before they went to school. But the ex-linebacker did little to break down these barriers. The 39-year-old refused any kind of help. By the middle of 1998, his days consisted of sitting around the house, half-naked, smoking crack, and having sex with escorts. According to him, this was the period when he did the most amount of cocaine of his life. In September 1998, police found drug paraphernalia and crack cocaine in a hotel room in Teaneck, New Jersey that LT had rented. However, LT wasn't in the room at the time, so police didn't charge him with possession. One month later, LT went to St. Petersburg, Florida to play in a golf tournament. 
In the early hours of the 19th, he was awakened by the knocking of his hotel room door by a man and a woman trying to sell him crack. LT had encountered the man earlier that evening and passed on purchasing the drug. After a short back and forth, LT relented and bought $50 worth of crack. Instantly, the door burst open and LT was surrounded by cops. It was a setup. For the second time, he had been arrested for buying from an undercover informant. And to make matters worse, LT was finally charged with the drug paraphernalia found in the hotel room a month before. Though he would only have to pay a fine for the paraphernalia charge, the undercover drug bust was a lot more serious. However, he was given an option. Either enter rehab again or face jail time. Coming up, a fateful night in 2010 derails LT's road to redemption. Now back to the story. After years of toiling in degradation, it was time for Lawrence Taylor to get some help. Twice in two years, LT had been arrested for buying crack cocaine. And with a looming threat of serious jail time, the 39-year-old Taylor, by order of the court, went back to rehab at the end of 1998. But this stint was going to be different. LT was forced to have a roommate, a first for him while undergoing the process. After 30 days, LT was ready to pack it in. But a friend said no. He told LT that he was going to need to stay another 30 days or answer to the courts. LT reluctantly stayed, but continued to not take rehab seriously. However, that all changed during a group session. According to LT, his counselor claimed that the breakthrough occurred when he showed the group game tape of LT in which he was clearly on drugs. LT had always claimed to have never done drugs during a game, but in rehab, he admitted that he had. As LT says, what I saw on that game film humbled me. I looked like I was running underwater. What specific game the story refers to is unclear. LT doesn't elaborate in his memoir about the particulars, but the video got the job done. LT for the first time at the age of 39, admitted that he was a drug addict. Over the course of his 64 days in rehab, LT finally took the time to reflect on himself, on his relationships, on the highs of being on the field, and the lows of being handcuffed in a squad car for buying crack. In his memoir, LT describes why this stretch was different from the previous ones. He writes... I think that answer is that you won't get better until you are sick and tired of being sick and tired. When I was smoking crack, I had no choice. The drug made my choices for me. The program and the camaraderie of my group gave me a chance to make a choice. Going through rehab, he had come to grips with how lost he was. Smoking crack, sleeping with escorts, staying out late. He did all of that to mask the confusion and loneliness he felt inside. The results of embracing the rehab process and sobriety showed. Not just for LT, but to his family as well. 
For the first time, they could see that LT was taking rehab seriously. Though there was always a fear that he would relapse, LT's children could see that LT was ready to make a change. All LT could do was take it one day, one step at a time, and to show his family and the world that he was ready to make a change. One man who was willing to give LT his first step to rebuilding his life was film director Oliver Stone. Stone was in the middle of directing a movie about football, and he had the perfect role for LT in the film, Any Given Sunday. Playing a star linebacker addicted to pain-relieving cortisone shots, LT gave a memorable performance, all of which culminated in the famous steam shower scene. Paired with Jamie Foxx, who played a backup quarterback, LT's character reflects on how lucky they are to be playing the game, and more importantly, how a man should look back on his life and be happy with all of it, not just what he did on the field. Well, anything but subtle, the scene perfectly encapsulates Lawrence Taylor's life, the highs, the lows, and the journey towards redemption. The road that lay ahead of him wasn't going to be easy, but LT was committed. When any given Sunday finished shooting, LT made the decision to move to Florida. New Jersey and the proximity to New York City was a bad place for him. While filming the movie, he had grown attached to the area, and not just for its gorgeous golf courses. He loved the atmosphere, and he knew it was the change he needed. As LT was in the midst of staying clean, a hurdle was thrown his way that he knew he was going to need to cross. In 1999, LT became eligible to be inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and soon thereafter, on August 7th, he was officially inducted. On the steps of the Hall of Fame entrance in Canton, Ohio, in front of thousands of fans wearing number 56 and chanting LT's name, 17-year-old Lawrence Taylor Jr. stepped up to the podium and introduced his father. TJ's speech meant the world to LT. He became emotional as he watched his son not only exalt his accomplishments on the field, but describe how much he and his sisters loved him. LT knew he wasn't the greatest father in the world. During his children's formative years, he was strung out on cocaine. But in the process of staying clean, watching TJ added fuel to the fire for LT to stay on the straight and narrow. When TJ finished, it was LT's turn. He went through the long list of people who got him to Canton. His parents, Iris and Clarence, his ex-wife, Linda, his kids, TJ, Whitney, Tanisha, and Paula, his teammates, and of course, Bill Parcells. After finishing up the list of people to thank, he ended his speech describing what it means to be a Hall of Famer and how they face adversity. He said, No matter how many times life knocks you down, no matter how many times you think you can't go forward, no matter how many times things just don't go right, you know, anybody can quit. Anybody can do that. A Hall of Famer never quits. A Hall of Famer realizes that the crime is not being knocked down. The crime is not getting up again. To the sound of applause, LT's bust was placed alongside fellow titans of the game. 
In his mind, LT the Troublemaker was gone. Now he was back to being Lawrence Taylor, and he would stay out of trouble for good. For the rest of the 2000s, LT made good on his commitment to staying clean. He found himself in various acting roles, such as Shaft, In Hell, Mercy Streets, and an episode of The Sopranos. His relationship with his family improved exponentially. Linda and the kids stood by him at every step of his recovery. Taylor's romantic life was looking up too. On November 28, 2001, he married Maritza Cruz, an extra he had met while filming Any Given Sunday. And in 2004, at the age of 45, he published his memoir, LT, Over the Edge. In the memoir, he opened up more about his personal struggles with drugs and his partying lifestyle, while also reminiscing about the good days of life in Giants Stadium. Not long after the memoir was released, the marriage to Maritza Cruz ended. They divorced in 2005. But that didn't stop Taylor from trying to find love. In 2007, the 48-year-old Taylor married 33-year-old Lynette Taylor. And in 2009, the couple adopted a three-year-old named Mally, a second chance at fatherhood. Going into the 2010s, Taylor had been clean for a decade. And with his wife Lynette and adopted son, he was thankful for how he was able to turn it all around. The image of a bad boy drug addict from the 80s and 90s seemed to have changed. But Taylor's redemption was about to take a major setback. Lawrence Taylor was arrested in the New York City suburb of Ramapo, about 25 miles northwest of Manhattan. He was being investigated in connection with the rape that allegedly took place at a Holodome Hotel in the Ramapo village of Montebello. Taylor, who's 51, was one of the greatest defensive players in football history. In March 2010, 16-year-old Brooklyn native Christina Fierro was reported missing by her family. Fierro had run away and, unbeknownst to the family, was living with a 36-year-old man named Rashid Davis in the Bronx. While living together, Davis forced Fierro into sex work. Two months later, in the early morning of May 6, 2010, Davis took Fierro to a Holiday Inn in Montebello, New York, about 35 miles from Manhattan. During the car ride, Davis had repeatedly hit Fierro. And when they got to the hotel, he told her that she was going to have sex with a man in a room for $300. When Fierro knocked on the door, she had no idea who the naked Lawrence Taylor was as he answered. According to her, he complimented her on her hair, claiming that it looked like his wife's. Fierro excused herself into the bathroom and texted her uncle. He told her to call the police. She quickly dialed 911 and left the phone in her purse. As Taylor massaged Fierro, she anticipated the police crashing through the door to rescue her. They didn't. In the span of about 20 minutes, the two had sex. Taylor had given her the money and asked her to turn the TV on as she left. When Fierro returned to Rashid Davis, she called her uncle again and spoke to him in Spanish so Davis wouldn't understand. And when they returned to Davis's Bronx home, the police were waiting. Davis was immediately arrested. And soon, the police headed to the Holiday Inn in Montebello. At 4 a.m. on May 6th, 
51-year-old Lawrence Taylor was arrested and charged with third-degree rape or sexual intercourse with someone under the age of 17, the age of consent in New York. He was also charged with soliciting prostitution. After posting a $75,000 bail, Taylor awaited his trial while dodging a barrage of scrutiny from the media. News outlets ran stories claiming that he knowingly sought out the young girl and beat her in addition to the sexual assault. The former New York Giants star seemed relaxed in court, looking around the gallery, smiling and declaring it must be a slow news day. Through his lawyer, he pleaded not guilty to third-degree rape, patronizing a prostitute, sexual abuse and endangering a child. He's accused of paying a 16-year-old runaway for sex in a suburban New York City motel room in May. Taylor's lawyer says the defense will challenge the girl's identification of him. Attorney Arthur Idala insisted there's no plea bargain in motion. To this day, Taylor maintains that Fierro told him she was 19 during the night of May 6th, but that didn't matter. At the time of the incident, she was still a week away from her 17th birthday and was therefore not legally able to give consent. As the realization hit him that fighting the charge would more than likely lead to jail time, Taylor did the only thing he could do. Taylor's attorney, Arthur Idala, says his client admits it. He paid for sex. She told him he was 19, she was 19 years old. He later found out that wasn't true. The former New York Giants linebacker was not sentenced to any jail time, but will be on probation for six years, and he must register as a sex offender. He just wants to go back to being a, a member of the community and, and serving the community and doing good things. Prosecutors say they agreed to a plea deal in part because Lawrence Taylor helped them in the investigation of some human trafficking cases. On January 13th, 2011, Lawrence Taylor pleaded guilty. A few months later, in April, as part of his six-month probation, he was also deemed a level one sex offender for the next 20 years. Level one is the lowest grade and means that Taylor was considered low risk to the public. Judge William Kelly didn't believe that Taylor would commit the crime again. The sentence was a sigh of relief for Taylor, but that didn't mean his image didn't take a major hit. He hit the talk shows and news outlets to try and show the world that he may have made mistakes, but he wasn't a deranged person who preyed on minors. The state of New York may have considered the case closed, but for Fierro, it wasn't. In late November 2011, then-18-year-old Christina Fierro, now represented by Gloria Allred, sued the 52-year-old Taylor in civil court for punitive damages. However, less than a year after the civil suit was brought against him, on October 26, 2012, a jury took less than an hour to side with Taylor. He lit up a cigar to celebrate his legal victory. The whole ordeal reminded the 53-year-old that his journey towards redemption was still a long way off. Yes, he had been clean from crack cocaine for 15 years, but on the night of May 6th, the police found bottles of alcohol in his hotel room. Perhaps there was one more vice he still needed to kick before he was done working on his turnaround. In 2013, Taylor made the decision to become sober. In the years that he had been drug-free, he was still an avid drinker. Giving up alcohol was difficult for Taylor. He admits at the time of the documentary LT, The Life and Times, 
in which he was only a few months into his sobriety, that it was new and hard. Saying the words may have been easy, but the urge to drink continued to fill him. Like kicking crack, taking it one day at a time was all he could do. Unfortunately, sobriety didn't stick. In September 2016, he was arrested and charged with a DUI after sideswiping a police car in Palm Beach County, Florida. In June 2017, he pleaded guilty and admitted to the court that he had a little too much to drink before getting behind the wheel. In the last few years, Taylor has stayed relatively quiet and clean. From time to time, he'll send the occasional football-related tweet and speak at football camps. But since the 2016 DUI arrest and the 2017 guilty plea, Taylor has managed to move the spotlight away from him. But for how long? When Lawrence Taylor began his professional football career in 1981 at the age of 22, the world was his for the taking. The New York Giants knew they had selected a special player. His aggressive style of play and attack of the ball forced offenses to change how they lined up against linebackers. And other defenses quickly followed the trend of incorporating linebackers more in their schemes. Instead of being remembered as a football legend, Taylor's life has been marred by controversy. An addiction to crack damaged relationships with his family and made him a laughingstock in the 1990s. But despite being able to turn his life around during the 2000s, Taylor couldn't stop getting in the way of himself. A statutory rape case in 2010 only gave more reason to question whether or not Taylor would ever be able to shake the LT image of his youth. The question becomes whether, in the remaining years, Taylor can finally, after 60 years, be able to shake all of his demons. Will his legacy be what he did for the sport of football? Or will he be remembered as nothing more than a criminal? Thanks again for listening to Sports Criminals. We'll be back next week with another. You can find all episodes of Sports Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Well, not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Sports Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Sports Criminals on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Sports Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Sports Criminals was written by Joe Guerra and stars Tim Johnson and Carter Roy. <laughs>